Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die, where my goal is to give you evidence that although our bodies will disappear, we survive physical death. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the international best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. Today on the show, we have John Turk. John received his Ph.D. in chemistry in 1971 and wrote the first environmental science textbook in North America and continued as an environmental science writer for 40 years. However, he abandoned academics to engage in extreme adventures. His 1,500-mile circumnavigation of Ellesmere, which is close to the North Pole, with Eric Boomer, was nominated in 2012 by National Geographic as one of the top 10 adventures of the year. His newest book is called Crocodiles and Ice, A Journey into Deep Wild. Now, what does John know about life after death, you may ask? Well, he's also author of a book called The Raven's Gift, a scientist, a shaman, and their remarkable journey through the Siberian wilderness. Today, he'll share how this experience changed his life and why he believes we don't die. You can visit johnturk.net or simply go to wedontdieradio.com and click on episode 119 for lots more information about this incredible man. John Turk, welcome to We Don't Die Radio. It's great to be here talking with you, Sandra. Oh, it's great to talk to you, too. And where are you this fine morning? I'm in um, the Bitterroot Mountains in southwestern Montana. We have a little house up in the mountains. It's uh, raining in the valley and snowing up in the mountains just above our house. Winter's coming in. Wow, how cool. And I'm in Massachusetts, and it's going to be 80 degrees here today, which is strange, (laughs) being in October 2016. Well, John, where do we start this story? Because you have taken this unbelievable extreme adventure in your life. Um, Can you take us just maybe a little bit back in your past? You were in academic writing and he made a big shift. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll jump quickly through 70 years of my life. I grew (laughs) up in suburban Connecticut, a very traditional, loving um, household. My father commuted into New York City and was a professor of chemistry and so on. I got my PhD in organic chemistry in 1971. So I had a very traditional and very scientific upbringing. I, I was a scientist, a research scientist, and believed in the, all the techniques of, of science. Right. At, um, right after I got my PhD, I realized just for temperament reasons that I didn't want to spend my life in a lab, and I started writing, and uh, we, my father, my sister, my brother-in-law, myself, wrote the first environmental science textbook in North America in response to Earth Day 1, 1970. Pretty cool. So I, yeah, <laughs> thank you. So I, I, was a, I went from being a research scientist to being a, a science educator or writer. And then also following my natural temperament, I ended up doing extreme adventures all over the world. So now we jump from 1970 to 1990, 20 quick years, and I was kayaking across the North Pacific Ocean from Japan to Alaska, two-year expedition across the North Bering Sea. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I thought that it was possible to cross an ocean in the world's smallest boat, a 65-pound boat. Most people call, say a yacht is a small boat, and that's smaller than an aircraft carrier. But a kayak is the world's smallest boat. And I, I thought it was technically possible to cross an ocean in a off-the-shelf kayak. So that was a two-year expedition. Uh, we followed the rim, the the arcing rim of the North Pacific from uh, Japan, eventually ending up in Alaska two years later. So along the way, we're following the coast of Kamchatka in Russia. That's extreme northeastern Siberia. And we're going along the coast, 
And we're, we're, of course, very aware of weather patterns and watching the barometer. We carry a little uh, barometric pressure watch, watching the barometer, watching for storms. That's our life, depending upon how we read storms. And we come into the uh, adjacent to this village, and we decide not to stop there, that we're going to keep going because we have a long way to go. And then all of a sudden, this storm comes up, this horrific storm out of nowhere. No indication from my barometric pressure, no lenticular clouds, no warning. A storm just comes ripping out, and it's screaming water across, lifting the waves up into the rain, lifting the, driving the rain into the waves, and it's just crazy out there. So we, my Russian partner, Misha, and myself say, well, we better go to town. And we're right offshore of this little town. So we come crashing through the surf, (laughs) wash up on the beach, all soaked and bedraggled. I'm getting out of my kayak. I'm in my mid-50s now, so I'm a little creaky um, being in the kayak for 10 hours or something. And this woman walks across the beach, a Koryak woman, um, wearing a big Russian peasant coat and a dog fur hat. And she speaks in English. And she says, welcome, John. Welcome, Misha. She knows our names. Wow. And she says, it's good to see you. I go, okay, yeah, it's good to see you, too. (laughs) You know, you have a warm house there. I smell bread baking. Yes. (laughs) Coming out of your house, it's good to see you. And she says, we were expecting you. The grandmother created the storm to bring you to our village. She wants to talk to you. Oh, my. Yeah, that's what I said. So what do I think? What's going through my head? Well, what's going through my head is I'm here, I'm in a very remote place. The nearest paved road is nine time zones away, like from the distance from New York to San Francisco to New York and back to San Francisco. I'm out here. These people will provide me sustenance, physical sustenance. I'm not here to question I'm not here to be cynical. I'm not. I'm just here to accept what's happening at this moment. Sure. And if the grandmother created the storm to bring bring us to the village, I'd be more than delighted to talk to the grandmother. Oh my goodness! So this starts now. What I didn't realize is a five-year odyssey in this village. Um, we go up river the next day to see the grandmother, Mula Nott. She was 96 at the time. She was born during the reign of Tsar Nicholas II. Her earliest memories are standing on a hilltop and watching her father down on the beach trading reindeer with the Yankee gun runners for Winchester rifles to fight the Bolsheviks. Um, she's lived this entire life, uh, virtually from the Stone Age to modern times. <sighs> she's a healer. She's a shaman. She's a traveler back and forth between the real world and the other world, which she does routinely. So we, we visit her. We have lunch. Um, I try to you know, do the journalism thing. I'm a writer, right? right. I want to get I want to get some snippets from her that I can put in my book. Well, I don't get anything. She tells me some stories, some simple stories about picking berries and so on and so forth. And then as we're leaving, she says, "John, Misha, come back. It will be good if you do." Five or ten words, whatever that is. And that changed my life because we, we came back. We came back the following year. So now 
she puts us on this mission. She wants us to go out in the tundra with her stepsons, Olek and Sergei, who are grown men, um, and find some reindeer and some reindeer people that are out there on the tundra somewhere. Um, and it's, it's spring. So spring in Siberia means temperatures like winter in Mon- in the mountains in Montana. So, um, zero to 10 below at night and maybe warming up to plus 20 during the day. And that's warm We're for there, right? <laughs> that's warm. That's spring. <laughs> Things are, 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 you know, heading towards melting. So we're traveling by snow machine. As I say, it's a totally trackless, roadless wilderness, bigger than the United States. Think of a of a landscape three times the United States with no roads. And we're traveling, and we were out for over a month, blah, 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 long story. All this is uh, documented in my book, The Raven's Gift. And coming back now, it's warming up. It's starting to melt. The rivers are breaking up. Uh, we're crossing a, a small river, a large creek with a snow machine. We drop the snow machine in the creek through breaks through the ice. I'm muscling the machine out of the water. I slip. I injure my pelvis. It's re-injured it. It was an old injury that I had suffered many years ago. I can't walk. I'm in intense pain. Okay, this in itself is not a life-threatening situation. It's a big owie. I'm not almost dead. Right. But I'm out in the tundra, no hospitals, no doctors, nothing. And I can't walk. And my Koryak friends are very not disturbed by this. I'm like upset. I want a helicopter. I want to go to a hospital. Sure. And they say, don't worry. Um, we'll tie you to the sled. We'll drag you back to the village and the grandmother will heal you. You've been doing us a favor. You bought the gas. We've been going out looking for reindeer. We found the reindeer. We're bringing meat home to the village. You're a friend. So that was all I had. I did not have any other options. And I, I realized right then and there at that instant that I had to discard all skepticism, all my scientific background, and be totally open to whatever happened because my life depended on it. And it was a beautiful moment that you take your lifetime of training, of upbringing, and you say, I'm going to put that in the background. And I'm here in this very ancient tradition, and I'm here to learn, I'm here to heal. So we go back to the village. Um, by, it took a couple of days to get back. At that time, I was a little better. I could stand. I could walk a little bit. And we go in and into this room, just me and the grandmother and uh, Lydia, who translated. And she has me take off all my clothes. She has me stand on one leg with one arm behind my back, the other arm straight out in front of me. As I learned later, this is the shamanic crane pose, the pose of flight, the way to fly into the other world. Hmm. And she spits on my pubic hair, and she says, we're going to go on a journey, and you have to believe. If you don't believe, it's going to be very bad for me, very bad for Kutcha, the messenger raven, and really bad for you. And she stares at me. She's a short woman. She's probably under five feet tall. She's almost 100 years old. And I look into her eyes, and I'm terrified. There's something going on here that is intensely scary. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I know for sure is that I can't lie to this woman. I can't just wing it and fake it. 
and I say, I, I'm a scientist. I grew up in a different culture. My mother never taught me to believe in Kutka the Raven and in flying into the other world. But I will try. I will try with all my heart. And she says, that's good enough. <laughs> and we fly to the other world. Remember now, I'm naked now. I'm standing on one foot. And we take this journey to the other world. I have no idea how long it takes. I have no idea how long I was there. And she asked Kutcha, the raven, the messenger raven, to fly to the woman who lives on top of the highest mountain and to ask the woman to heal me. At a certain point, she says, we're done now. You can stand up, and I'm better. Okay? You're better. The next, I'm better. I'm like 100% better. Huh. The next day, we, my <laughs> wife and I, go skiing. We ski a steep, icy mountain, um, the kind of thing that would really tweak your pelvis. And I have total confidence. I'm ripping down this mountain at high speed like I'm 18 years old. Okay? Okay. I want to hear more. All right. But go ahead, your journey. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you have any questions, go ahead. Well, I don't know what to make of this. Do you, you remember see, I go, anything from the standing on one foot and going on this journey with her? I mean, do No. You, I just remember concentrating on standing on one foot. She was chanting. And I remember feeling like I was a raven. Like I was balancing on a thin branch, wavering in the breeze, wingtip to wingtip with the other ravens out there on the branch. That was the feeling I had. I was, I was flying to the other world, but I had no vision of what the other world was like. That was to come later. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm buckled but in. At that time. On this go ride, ahead. listening to you. So. Go for it. I'm excited to hear what else happens. So then I'm better, and I go home, and I spend the better part of a year skiing and climbing and hiking and riding my mountain bike, and I'm 100% better. Wow. Never have a, a, any kind of a recurring episodic pain or anything, zero. So I go, I gotta, I have to probe deeper. I can't just stop here. Right. Okay. So I, I contact Misha, my Russian partner, and I said, we have to go back to the village and find out a little bit more what's going on. So we said, okay. So w we made up this ruse, which was that we were coming back to thank Mulanot. Well, really, I was coming back because I had to go deeper into an understanding of what happened. Right. So we, um, there's, there's no road to the village. There's no airport. So we fly to the nearest place and we hike over the tundra with a big Santa Claus pack full of gifts for the grandmother and uh, other friends there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we come to the village. This is a year later. This is now two years after the first visit to the, um, to the village, Vivenka. And... I bring her the gifts, so warm clothes, socks, gloves, all that kind of stuff, stuff that she can use. And she swirls them away. She, her eyes light up. Wow, this is really good. <laughs> These are good. This is good stuff. Mm -hmm. And she hides them under her bed like she's not going to give them up. But then she says, thank you very much for the gifts, but you're giving the gifts to the wrong person. You're thanking the wrong person. I just introduce you to Kutcha, the raven. You have to thank Kutcha directly because Kutcha made the dangerous journey to the woman who lives on top of the highest mountain. And you have to thank Kutcha directly. Okay, Sandra, I'm way out of my element here, right? Yes. So I say, okay, <laughs> how do you thank Kutcha? 
she said, well, I'll take you to the other world and introduce you to them. And then you're on your own. I go, okay. Uh-huh. Okay. So we eat a hallucinogenic mushroom, the mushroom of the tundra, the amanita. And Mulanat and I, we're sitting now in chairs in a warm room, and we're taking off to the other world on a physical walking journey through the labyrinth that separates the real world from the other world. And then she leaves me, and I can see a circle of light. That's the other world. And then once I cross that threshold, Kutha will be there, and I'll be able to figure out what to do next. I'll be able to thank Kutha, right? So I start trudging. And this is as real as anything in real life. And then, Sandra, I get terrified. I am way over my head. I cannot willfully, intentionally walk across that threshold. There is no way I can do it. This is way too scary. I have no idea what I'm going to encounter when I get there. I know it is real. I'm absolutely certain. But I'm not ready to go there. I'm not capable of going there. And I turn around and I run back to the real world through the labyrinth, get lost, all of that stuff. Finally end up back in Lydia's living room in the real world. Hmm. So now I feel this intense sense of failure, right? Because I came halfway around the world. I have this opportunity to go to the other world and, you know, to put it in the vernacular, I blow it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get scared. I escape. I'm not used to backing down, but this time I did in a major way. And I have a sense of failure. The next morning, nobody says anything. And we're eating breakfast, and Olek, the hunter, comes, and he says, it's November we have one last chance to go up river before the river freezes up. We're going to go hunting and we're going to bring food home for the people of the village. Come, you have to come. So we go, we go hunting. We we get it. We have a successful hunt. We bring food back for the for Mulanot, the old lady, and the other old people of the village who can't hunt. We're headed back down the river, and Olek stops the speedboat. Uh, now it's getting cold again. The river is starting to freeze up. And he says, John, you know why you failed in your journey to the other world? And my eyes open up like somebody's going to help me with this. And he says, John, you're a, you're a hunter like me. And when I say hunter, I don't necessarily mean the man who pulls the trigger. He's an intensely pragmatic human being, anchored to the real world with both feet. He says, you're a lousy traveler in the spirit world. <laughs> but the spirit world and the real world are the same world. And you have to make your journey in the real world. So come back next winter when it's really cold, when you're going to get tired, when you're going to get hungry, when you're going to get frostbitten, when you might die out there, and go out on the tundra, and you'll meet up with Kutka, and you can thank him. And this is how you have to make your journey. Now, this is getting way scary. Absolutely. I'm scared just listening to your story. So, but I do have confidence in my own ability in the real world, on the tundra, in the Siberian winter, in extreme cold, that I'm I'm competent. 
So we make the journey. We come back the next year, we being me and Misha. Misha is totally with me in all of this. He's my blood brother. That's great. And it's a long story. It's a whole book, The Raven's Gift. It's a whole book about this physical journey. But in the end, we meet Kutra. A raven flies down clearly to talk to us. Raven flies across the tundra, hovers over us. It's the last day of our journey. We're headed back to civilization, back to airplanes, Amsterdam, New York, but we're still on the tundra, and the raven hovers over us, shakes its wings, lowers itself down until it's within a hand's reach of my head, flies away, comes back, and does that three times. And to me, there's absolutely no question that this is the messenger raven from the other world. This is Kutka. And I thank Kutka for healing me with whatever thanks I have. Okay, now we're, we're got to jump real quickly. A couple years later, my wife dies. We're climbing a mountain to spread her ashes on the top of the highest mountain in the landscape that she loved, and Kuka comes back. I'm on the high ridge. It's a thunderstorm. I'm in the Canadian Rockies near the, the top of one of the highest mountains in the East Kootenays, and Kuka comes back and definitely comes to talk to me. And this, to me, there's no question, this is Chris returning from the other world to talk to me. So from all this stuff, I, it's, it's a different experience than perhaps some of your other guests are going to talk about. But to me, even though I have never personally crossed that threshold into this other world, the other world has come into the real world in a way that's hard to explain. And now I feel that my real world of mountains and storms and so on and so forth is, I, is totally integrated with the other world, that I'm living in both worlds. Does, does that make any sense? It does. I'm just trying to map it onto... I mean, I've had some miraculous things happen in my life that it is like the other world steps into this world. So I can kind of get it. And, and, you know, Sandra, I can only kind of get it. <laughs> yeah. For you, to ask, for you to ask me to really get it, no, I don't really get it. I just kind of get it. Okay? But it changes everything. It changes everything. My perception of every day, every moment. I mean, yeah, I mean, there are moments when you're brushing your teeth and you forget about it. You know, things are happening. You're not thinking about it every instant, but it keeps coming back all the time. And it changes, it changes your life. That it's all just one universal oneness. And it's all very glorious. And so I go through world, I, I go through life and so many times. So now I'm, I'm back into the high Arctic. Now we're jumping to my next book from the Raven's Gift that I just talked about to my newest book, Crocodiles and Ice. And we have lots of encounters with polar bears out there on the ice. Like nine close encounters with polar bears on one day. Oh my okay. gosh. And many days. I mean, nine was the most for one day. But we have, I didn't keep track. We have lots of close encounters with polar bears. Polar bears, we're living in this world of polar bears, okay? And the polar bears never eat us. See, that's scientific observable fact. I didn't get eaten. <laughs> 
Now, why? They had the chance. You see? And people will come with all different explanations. I've talked to biologists. I've talked to aboriginal hunters. I've talked to lots of people about this. And a lot of these people have traveled in the far north and also not been eaten by polar bears. And the only explanation I have is that there's a consciousness within our world that goes beyond the simple biological explanations. And you can call it whatever you want, but after talking with Kutcha from the other world, I have a feeling that there's this otherworldly consciousness, that there's a universal consciousness that's not just universal among people, but extends to polar bears and orcas and wolves. Right. We had a wolf come and sleep right next to our tent, like three feet from our tent, and spend the night with us. Mm. And that wolf, in my mind, there was no question about it, was there to talk with us. And there, as a representative from the other world, and to, and for that time that we were talking with that wolf, we were, he was opening that door to the other world that I saw on my journey with Mulanot in Siberia, but was afraid to enter. And now, as all these experiences happen, I feel I'm no longer afraid to go to go there. That it's okay. That it's comfortable. That it's not threatening. That there's no fear in making that journey into the other world. And this is so wondrous. This is so... It just takes away... It makes everything be just the flow of life, which includes death. That's part of the flow of life. It makes it all just wonderful. Okay? Yeah. So now, and little did I know that I was going to be put to the test about this emotional feeling in a major way. Okay, so now we complete the expedition. Let me, I'll give you a little background on the Ellesmere expedition. It was 1,500 miles across some of the most, the roughest, most remote terrain on Earth in the polar Arctic wow. across the sea ice with polar bears and wolves and dangerous sea ice. That's a half a marathon. We had 100 days to do it in. That's how much food we had. So that means traveling a half a marathon a day, pulling a two to 300-pound sled over pressure ridges through rough ice and all of this, roughest terrain imaginable. Half a marathon a day for every day for 100 days. Wow. Charlie. And I'm 65 years old. Wow, double wow. So it took, it, it took a, a perseverance beyond normal perseverance. When we were at one point where things were really rough and it was looking, it was looking bad for us. I had a friend who's an endurance athlete text me on our satellite phone. And he said, when the barriers are big enough, you can't get tough and go over them. You have to make them vaporize, make the, vap the barriers, the physical barriers vaporize. They can't be there. 
you're not tough enough to do this physically. Huh. And all of a sudden I saw this, this light from the labyrinth, from Mulanath, this journey to the other world. And I, I can't define it exactly, but you had to put yourself in a headspace where outcome, life, death, success, failure, no longer had any meaning. You were, you were in another world, even though you're in the real world. Right. But it's not the real world, it's the other world. And I keep thinking of, of Olek talking to me. He says, John, you're a lousy traveler in the other world. You have to make your journey in the real world. Well, I'm in the real world now. I'm on the ice. I'm with the polar bears. I'm with the storms. I'm in the polar zone. And I realize I have to make this real world journey through the other world. That's the only way through it. So we succeed. 104 days, 1,500 miles. We get back to our starting point, which is the only village on the island. This is Ellesmere Island, 10th largest island in the world. We're done. We're complete. We're finished. Journey over. Phew. Yeah. Yay. Now we're going to fly out. We're going to fly home. I'm going to go back to my home in Montana and hang out with my beautiful and loving wife. Well, it wasn't that simple. A storm came in, and the flight back towards civilization couldn't, couldn't land. They couldn't land. So we had to hang out in the village. So 36 hours after... We completed the journey. My metabolism shuts down. Physically. I go to the clinic and they take my vital signs and they fax them or email them or phone them in or whatever to Johns Hopkins University down in Baltimore of some a team of specialists and they say, this man is dying. Wow. Get him out of there. And my, my body had just had enough. It said, you've pushed me hard enough. Now that I get to relax, now that I've had a shower, food, a warm room, I've done my job. I'm shut off. And I'm dying. And this is a physical, another physical, identifiable, scientific death. That's happening. So we have the storm coming in. We have airplanes. We have a big rescue effort. We have a brave and courageous pilot um, flying under the storm, grabs me as the storm is, is swooping in, flies me um, to Baffin Island, a couple islands to the south where the weather's a little better, where there's a Learjet air ambulance waiting for me. And they're flying me to Ottawa, to the big, big national trauma center in Ottawa, Canada. So how sick was I? <laughs> well, I don't know. I never lost consciousness. Mm -hmm. But I do know that I was sick enough that when we were coming into Ottawa International Airport, they put all passenger jets on hold, put them into a pattern. We had total landing priority to land in Ottawa because they felt that the difference of a few minutes one way or the other could be the difference of life and death to wow. me. So, I like I say, I never lost consciousness. And I never went into the other world in the sense of crossing that portal, going way back to Mulanot, that going out of the labyrinth across the portal into the other world. In, I never knowingly did that. 
But I was there again at that portal, you see, and I'm lying in the air ambulance and, you know, it's, um, there's all kinds of Western medical equipment on this air ambulance and they have tubes and oxygen and all that kind of stuff, IVs and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm lying there and where do I go in my mind? I go onto that mountain carrying Chris's ashes up the mountain when Kufa came to visit me. And I'm right there again um, in that understanding that Chris was able to make the journey from the other world back to the real world and back to the other world and to bring me that message that it's okay. The other world is okay. You, there is no fear. Whatever your journey is, your journey is going to be, but I am over here. And I flew back to you on the wings of a black raven to bring you the message. And John, you will travel in the real world or this mix between the real world and the other world for some time yet. But I want you to know, and this I now is Chris through the body of the raven telling me that wherever your journey takes you, it's okay. It's all good. <laughs> and I'm lying there in the air ambulance and I'm listening to the pilot talking to this physician team in the Ottawa hospital. And I'm listening to the pilot talk to the control tower and I'm listening to the, all the pilots of all the airplanes making way for us. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's a very thin line now between me and death. And it's just, I want to live, but it's okay because the journey, wherever it takes me, is wonderful. And somehow this moment, this, this time with all this going on gives me such great freedom. I just can't describe it. That's okay. Um, so I didn't die, you see? Nope. They they landed um, and they put me in an ambulance and they flew me to the hospital and they patched me all up, you see? Uh, and now and that was uh, five years ago. I was 65. I'm 70 now. And, um, you know... I don't know how long I'm going to live, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Who knows? We don't know. I'm healthy right now. But all of these experiences have led me to this new journey. Right now, I'm on a big road tour. I'm in the midst of promoting this new book, uh, Crocodiles and Ice, A Journey into Deep Wild. And the lesson of this book is that your journey can travel you into ecstasy. Hmm. And my journey has been to ecstasy. And ecstasy is everything. It's life after death. It's life in, in the moment. It's everything. And I'm not saying I get there all the time. You know, we all have our moments where we get grumpy over a sore toe kind of thing. You know, <laughs> we all go there. Sure. But it's there. And the, the point of my book is that ecstasy is there for us all the time. All we have to do is accept it. And at the end of the book, I 
I know that there are some people that are going to um, say, well, you know, he finds ecstasy on the ice with polar bears and 30 below zero. I don't want to go there. So how am I going to find ecstasy? Mm-hmm. And I understood this when I was writing the book. But I, I worked with a um, as a storyteller with a dance company, Weber Dance Company out of Boston. And this long rambling story, we ended up in a prison in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. It was called a Youth Recovery Center, but it looked a lot like a prison to me. They had steel doors and bars on the windows and guys with guns and stuff. Mm-hmm. And inside this Youth Recovery Center was were a number of 14 to 18-year-old children criminals, um, all children, and they had all messed up in their lives to end up in this place where they didn't want to be. And the, the 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 dean or the the warden, whatever he was called, told us, "You, meaning me, John Turk, and the dancers and the dance choreographer Jody, you have an hour, and we want you to show these children hope." <laughs> I go, "Yeah, right. They have a whole lifetime of." bad stuff Mm -hmm. happening to them and you're 14 or 15 or 16 and you're in prison already how do you turn a lifetime around into hope and I realized that what we had to do is show them that there is another world and however you want to define it there is another world you see and it exists It's life after death. They have died and been put to prison by the time they're 15 years old. There is another life. Mm -hmm. And we had no, we didn't know we were going to be here in this prison that day. We had no practice. We hadn't talked about it. We being me and the dancers and Jody. It was total improv theater. But we're performers, we're working together, we're very attuned to each other. And we realized, all of us intuitively, without talking about it, that we have to dance these children criminals into another world. We have to show them that death, there's healing after death. And at the end of the hour, it brings tears to my eyes, we had every one of those children criminals dancing. The, the journey into rebirth. And that's, and that's my message. That's the best I could do, Sandra. It's not bad at all, John. <laughs> you know, it's so great listening to you because I have your book Crocodiles and Ice and just what I read about you I'm like how is this guy going to explain and what does this all mean and by hearing your journey I mean so many things came up and and I think the best um, a lot of learning we can do as human beings for our own life is listening to stories and you got a true story and but just thinking um, of all the life after death stuff I've dabbled in and things that I've experienced that I know that there's another unseen world, you know, and you had a a different way of getting there, but what it does for all of us. and, And that's one of the things I hope for this show for people too, is we may not go, um, 1500 miles and experience polar bears and, and all that kind of stuff. But there's a new, way of living available to everybody that not only not fearing death and realizing that there is another world but not fearing life and even you may not be in a physical prison like these boys were or these youths were 
But sometimes we kind of imprison ourselves by our own thinking, you know, like this is it for us. And you saying there is another world and it doesn't even have to be the life after death world. I mean, there's, there's something new available to all of us. And John, I, it's so, so funny to me when you were saying you got afraid when you had that experience um, of crossing over. Because I'm thinking, this man doesn't sound like he has any fear. I mean, for you to spend 10 or 15 miles a day, 10 hours a day crossing into the ice, I mean, what kind of person does that? Do you, that's why it just sounds kind of like a joke that you had any fear. I mean, you sound fearless. Well, (laughs) nobody's fearless. No, nobody Uh, is. There's a fear of the unknown. Yeah. Always for everybody. And the other world, for most of us, for many of us, uh, some of us have made the journey completely, but I think there is a natural fear into the unknown. And I think to sum up all of this last 50 minutes of talking is that gradually over these 10 years of this story that I've been talking about, this fear of the unknown has been vaporizing because the unknown has become the known, and it's a beautiful place to go to. Yeah. I, I'm, where I'm, my mind is thinking is that we are, we often think we're human beings that have souls, and, mm-hmm. and it's just the opposite that I believe, that we are souls who have a body just having a human experience, that... The other world is actually the real world, and where we are now is just some place we dip our feet into for however many years we're here um, to have these experiences. Thanks for summarizing it like that. That's beautiful. The other world and the real world are the same real world. We're just flowing through it. It's all part of the same continuum. It isn't a big transition. And that was the fear that I thought it was a big transition. Hmm. And then all of a sudden, like you just said, beautifully done, Sandra, beautifully, that it's not a big transition. And then once that it's not a big transition realization comes, then the journey becomes simple and fearless. Yeah, John, many people I've talked to say that when we die, or our bodies do anyways, where we go is like just returning home and realizing we've (laughs) been on a journey. That's all it is. We've just been on this journey called our life here as a human being. But my, what I'm left with from talking with you now is, and and I'm hoping... um, you listening too will maybe take this on yourself, but what is our extreme adventure going to be? Are we going to continue? I mean, some people don't play it safe. There's a lot of risk takers in a good way and they're pushing the envelope in their life. But I know for myself, you know, I, I play it small a lot, but there are not necessarily real 1500 mile ice cold journeys for me to take but i i think and you may agree john that a, a big value of living life is having new experiences does that resonate with you oh totally totally 100% look love isn't safe motherhood isn't safe no. these things that um we do and we um considered to be normal because lots of other people do it are very treacherous and very fraught with potential danger so we all um we all enter these these experiences love relationships motherhood and they're fraught with danger i mean people in the in the real world you know there's problems and that what I'm trying to say and what you're trying to say and what we're bantering back and forth here is that 
these things, you know, it's a Buddhist concept. Bad things are going to happen. Yeah. Suffering is your choice. So nobody gets through life, you know, gets a clean bill of health. The fairy godmother wolf telling you that everything is going to be okay for, for your entire life. Right. Nobody gets that. Nope. Zero. We all have bumps along the road. Like I say, and it's just normal things, earning a living, getting married, having children. All of these things are fraught with danger, and everybody has experienced problems in these absolutely normal things. So bad things happening is universal. It's 100%. Suffering is our choice. Mm. We can choose to suffer or not. And... As you just said, you enter these very dangerous activities, love, motherhood, and so on and so forth, and you have to do it, you don't have to, but I think you're better off if you do, with a total sense of total involvement, a total acceptance that this is going to be your journey. I think I'm just saying what you just said. (laughs) No, it's so good because it's not like, you know, you're out there on the ice and you can just change your mind and I want to go home. I mean, you have set your sails, you're out there on your adventure and you have to be fully present and give it your all. And even when you met this 96-year-old woman, I, I mean, that's not anything you'd normally experience, but you had to be all in. And so where is it in our lives that we can... Whatever extreme adventure we're on, where we can push the envelope, but really stay present and really give it our all, and and I think there's just so much value there for for our lives. And I I believe that everything we experience here is great experience and learning for our soul, necessary for whatever involvement that happens. And you just come across John as a guy that's pushed the envelope, who's dared to go where people don't normally go, who is a role model, even pushing into your own fears and having new experiences, which you never thought was possible. And even now with all of this, so you continue to share. And a word that I'm left with from you speaking is just having that freedom, freedom to be okay with however it's going to go, it's going to go. Wherever your journey <laughs> takes you, it's okay. It's all good. I wrote that down. You know, and that's, that's It's all good. Yeah, hooray. Hooray. <laughs> hooray. Oh, John, our hour's up just about here. Do you have any closing words you want to say? Or also, if you want to share how people can get in touch with you. And um, definitely on my website, We Don't Die Radio, episode 119. I've got the links to your books and to your website. But any closing words? Yeah, no, it's just that um, it's a journey into ecstasy. It's a journey into freedom. And um, I spend a lot of time in the Crocodiles and Ice talking about compassion. And once you have freedom, once you are free of your fears, then you have the space for compassion, compassion for yourself, compassion for your loved ones, compassion for the earth. And and the the lack of fear, the throwing away of fear, the opening of your soul to freedom, to allowing whatever happens, what's left is compassion. And I'd like to leave leave my audiences with the feeling is that once you reach compassion for everything, through freedom, through letting the barriers fall down, then the world both in this world and in the other world, is as glorious as it can be. Mm, Great closing words. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Sandra. It was really great talking with you. Don't hang up just yet. But anyways, I want to thank you. I want to thank our listener. Uh, and, And just really mapping this on for your life. How does this conversation make a difference in in your life? You know, we all have those barriers, 
but like John said, you know, go through your barriers is freedom and ultimately compassion. But it all starts with facing the fears and the and the barriers. Tough thing to do, but it sure sounds like there's some ecstasy on the other side. So <laughs> in closing, uh, I just want to remind you our home base is we don't die radio.com where you can listen to all kinds of shows and um and also pick up a free copy of my book if you'd like. If you click on the Insiders Club, you can read a copy of my book and get all kinds of other goodies. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, I do ask you to share. However you listen, whether it's on iTunes or YouTube or iHeartRadio or TuneIn Radio, take a second and share this link with someone. And in your life, you just never know how it could make a difference. So in closing, my name's Sandra Champlain, and I have been your host on We Don't Die Radio. And I do believe that life is an education for the soul and that your life here on earth is important. So one more time, John says, wherever your journey takes you, it's okay. It's all good. Remember, you're in a perfect place. So thank you for listening and we'll see you soon. 